Word of God from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, who live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Oh, the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God. His ways are past finding out. The Apostle Paul, writing by the Spirit, has disposed of the objections in chapter 6 and 7, which hindered him from bringing his argument to full bloom. And those out of the way, he is now enabled to bring forth the full thrust of his argument in chapter 8. We therefore have before us a chapter of chapters, one of the most comely parts of the body of God's truth. As we look at it today, it holds for us a powerful possibility. Would that every soul in this room would lay hold of such a potential. This chapter deals with how a Christian is to think of himself. And he is to do so, not on the basis of his own problems, starting with his own difficulties, as we so often do, but he's to think of himself basically in what God has done, making that the starting point and indeed the basis of his life. We're so apt to make our sense of victory in life dependent upon our own feelings or performance. But God wants our sense of triumph to be based upon his truths. Thus Jesus prayed, sanctify them through thy truth. For the truth of God is like a platform on which we stand. And therefore, true and deep theology, the grasp of what God has done, is a necessary base for victorious living. To whom does God promise such victory? Well, in verse 1 it reads, those who are in Christ Jesus. This does not mean a certain group of Christians who have had some extra blessing it does not refer to certain Christians who behave very properly and righteously. It is not a select group. Those who are in Christ Jesus encompass all believers. For everyone who has brought saving faith and repentance to God is numbered in the people who are in Christ Jesus. 
the best texts and manuscripts of this passage do not contain the words at the, at the end of verse 1, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's in the King James Version, because at the time of that translating, we did not have such ancient manuscripts. But that does not appear to be an authentic part, not that it would basically change the meaning, but it would be liable to the misunderstanding that only certain Christians are enclosed in this category of being in Christ Jesus, whereas in fact the period comes after Christ Jesus, meaning that every believer, regardless of the perfection and the amount of sanctification and holiness and growth which has taken place in his life, in Christ Jesus, has this said about himself, there is no condemnation for you. So if we wanted to sum up chapter 8, and particularly these first four verses, we could say that Christ Jesus has taken the believer out of the reach of condemnation and placed him in the realm of conquering. And that's why later on in the chapter we'll come to that great phrase, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Now, what does this all mean? It means that God has done something very marvelous. He's taken us out of this reach of condemnation, brought us up into the realm of conquering, that we may have victorious, overcoming life. God wants us to be successful and strong in Christian living. But the enemy of our souls has as his design to keep us down, in the reach of condemnation. Though we are not there, he would have us think we are and feel that we are. And by accusing us and reminding us of our sins, try to hold us back from soaring into the realms of the conquering. What an awful, devious plan he has. May it not be so in any of us. But in order to live on this level where we really have been placed, the level of conquest, we need a platform to stand upon. And the platform is that great first verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the base on which we stand. No condemnation. It doesn't mean that there aren't things in us that are worthy of condemnation. There are. But it means that we who are in Christ are not condemnable whatsoever. And the verb here, the, the negatives, are double negatives, as if God is putting two strokes under the negative, saying, no, never. Accusations there will be. Afflictions there will be. Sins, transgressions, corruptions of the flesh. All these inconsistencies even but never, no, never condemnation. Never. And that great platform rests on pillars which are strong enough to hold it forever in your heart. The pillars are enumerated in verses 2, 3, and 4. Let's look at those for a moment. The first massive pillar or conviction 
which holds up this affirmation, no condemnation, is that we have been freed from the condemnation of the law. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Now what is that law of the spirit of life? Well, of course, the Spirit here is the Holy Spirit, who is himself the fountain of life. And the pattern in which he works has a certain order to it. God always works according to pattern. And that pattern in which he works is called the gospel, or the reign of grace. And so we call that the law of the Spirit of life. This is just God's varied way of saying the gospel of grace. The same Spirit who caused the world to be formed, the same Spirit who drew the children of Israel out of Egypt and dammed up the waters of the Red Sea, the same Spirit that brought Christ from the grave, he is the one who is the actor here and has accomplished this mighty deed of freeing the believer from the condemnation of the law in Christ Jesus. The Scripture is very express here that simply believing in God or having a heart toward God does not set us free from the condemnation of the Lord. It is in Christ Jesus. Notice that that word has set me free has a very definite ring and tense to it in the original language. It means there a, an immediate definite action which took place and was completed in past time. God freed me. The moment of justification, God liberated me from the condemnation of the law. But what is this law of sin and death? That law is the commandments of God. The Ten Commandments. While you say, is that sin and death? Yes, because as we saw earlier in this epistle, the law of God, when it confronts us, arouses our rebellion and inflames our own sinful nature. And then because we have sinned so grievously, causes our own death. Therefore, the law of God here is the law of sin and death. And it stands over against us. It is our great judge and opponent. It holds the plumb line of God's righteousness up next to the character of human beings and shows us our inadequacies and transgressions. And so we are under the condemnation of the law. But the believer has been set free from that by the law of the spirit of life. Our judgment day is behind us. The condemnation has been absorbed and is over, and we are free to go. Whereas the unbeliever still has his judgment day, his reckoning with the law of God before him. He must face that. Now it is very important for us to grasp this great truth that we have been set free from the condemnation of the law. As we grasp it, 
we will see that we are now able to bring forth fruit. As long as we were under the law, or as Paul puts it, married to the law, that is, we were in this intimate relation to it, and it was over against us and held us down by its commands, we could bring forth no fruit of holiness. But that union is over, and we've been betrothed to Christ and married to Him. We can bring forth much fruit unto God, and this is our being. There, therefore, is the first great and massive support that rests under this platform on which we stand for victorious living, that we are not under the condemnation of the law. We've been set free by the Spirit of life. Second great bulwark which gives us strength to stand in our no-condemnation position, is that God has condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus Christ. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. You see, the law of God, it can condemn the sinner, and it does. It will be used to judge the sinner. But while it can condemn the sinner, it cannot subdue the sin. The more the law of God comes in contact with the sin, the more it stirs up iniquity within the heart and causes sin to rise up and rebel. And therefore the law is powerless to overcome sin in the sinner. It's like putting a 10-foot pole next to a 6-foot man to measure him. You measure him all right, but you can't make the man 10-foot by simply measuring him. The law shows the way to righteousness, but it completely is unable to bring us into the practice of righteousness. Not that there is any fault in the law, it is just and holy and good. But the fault is in our own flesh, for sin has come and taken hold of us. But what has God done? He sent His own Son, and hear the words speak of the beloved intimacy and uniqueness of Christ to the Father, His own Son, in the likeness of sinful flesh, a very exact and accurate reflection of what took place in the likeness of sinful flesh. There was, as you recall, in the Old Testament, the brass serpent that was raised on the pole over the children of Israel when they were in disease. God said, look on the serpent and be healed. This was a brass serpent. It was in the likeness of a serpent. It wasn't really a serpent. It was in the likeness of it. And so Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh. It means that He came in the closest possible connection to our frail and dilapidated nature, even taking the results of our sin on Himself, but not the sin. So He wearied, He wept, 
he grieved, he was disappointed. All the fallout that comes from human sin, he felt in his blessed body and in his human nature. But in that nature which he took, because he wanted to condemn sin in the very stronghold where it had had the victory, there he satisfied the law of God. There he bore our guilt. There, taking our nature, he passed back to us his own renewed nature. There he became a sympathetic high priest to us. And there, in our own nature, he had the final word on Satan, who had defeated us in our flesh. He gained the victory in our sinful flesh. And thus he executed penalty against sin. He showed the evil of sin. He procured the breaking of its power. And once and for all, he took sin on himself and bore it into hell and vanquishing over it, he conquered sin in the flesh, pronouncing its doom and breaking its claim of authority over us forever and ever. Oh, what that means to us that for all who are in Christ, we have done everything Christ has done. Whatever belongs to the bridegroom belongs to the bride, and we're married to him. Therefore, sin has been rendered powerless and ineffective in us. It is a nuisance and an annoyance, but it shall not have dominion over us. It is forever broken. It is a defeated fall. It is a lion without claws and without teeth. Yet, knowing the great cost that sin involved our God in, and knowing the great suffering which it brought to our blessed Lord, we come to identify with God in loathing it, in wanting to separate ourselves from it, and in being as removed from sin as we can be in this life. There then is the second great pillar on which the platform of no condemnation rests. It's not just soothing words. Versus no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It rests on great strength. We have been set free from the condemnation of the law. That's behind us. Sin has been condemned and subdued in the flesh of Christ. Sin, therefore, as a tyrant, as the realm in which we live, has been banished and broken. A great reality. And the best is the last great pillar on which this truth rests. It is this, that God has made a way for us to obey his righteous law. For the law of God is simply the outline of his own character and goodness. And he wants his creatures to walk in its ways and live out its precepts. But the law itself was unable. It demanded, but it could not produce. But God in the gospel has made a way for a creature 
to walk in the righteousness of God. Therefore, that which had been impossible has become gloriously and blessedly possible in the gospel of Christ. Now, this was the reason Christ died, not simply to condemn sin in the flesh. That was what he did immediately. But the long-range end was that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. That was the real aim Christ had in view when he subdued sin, that we might be able to be free to walk in the righteousness of the law. Now, there's nothing new about this. When Jeremiah looked forward to the new covenant, what did he say? He said, I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. The coming of Christ does not mean the abrogation of the law, but a change. No longer is it an external standard that judges us and condemns us. But for whoever is in Christ Jesus, the law of God is an inner impulse. It has become written within. And therefore, God has found a way for us to walk righteously according to his law with him. This, then, is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. The Holy Spirit's impelling you to do actions and refrain from other actions is not in a vacuum. You don't live by hunches. The Holy Spirit impels you to do the things that fulfill the righteous law of God. Everything the Holy Spirit prompts you to do is really a fleshing out of the agenda that is in the commandments of God. You see, life in the Spirit is not a life of formless mysticism, which has no relation to the revealed will of God. Life in the Spirit means that the Spirit of God takes great joy in making your life break forth with the beauty of the law of God. Oh, what economy of God to take the very law that stood against us and translate it into a law that is the blessed rule of life. How gracious of God to take what was our enemy, which stood over us in judgment, and turn it into our friend. Oh, how I love thy law, says the believer in Jesus Christ. This, then, is a great pillar on which you rest, that God enables you to fulfill the righteousness of the law. You say, but I don't do it perfectly. No, we're not talking here of perfection until we get to heaven. But what the meaning is, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, this is no separation of two kinds of Christians, a carnal and a spiritual Christian. That's not taught here at all. What is taught is that the Christian because he is in Christ and because the spirit of life is working in him, has a new bent, a new general tenor of life, which is in the direction of spiritual things. And this is true of every true Christian. There are not degrees here of Christians. A Christian, therefore, walks according to the spirit, not perfectly, 
but he has the favor of God and the welfare of his soul and eternity in his mind. But the unbeliever walks according to the flesh. He's concerned about things of space and time, about prophets of his own senses and appetites and pleasures. It's a whole nother bent of direction. So what God is saying is, on the basis of this evidence, which is that the bent of my life is in the direction of the spiritual, and if there is no evidence of that in your life, you had better go back and examine your faith. But on the basis of this, that though I am not perfect, and though there's a long way to go toward maturity, nevertheless, the bent and tenor of my life is in the direction of spiritual things. On that basis, and knowing that I am in Christ, all these glorious possibilities are mine. I am out of the reach of condemnation. I'm in the realm of conquering. And I therefore beg you, friend, don't allow yourself to come back under condemnation. Don't feel under condemnation, even when you sin. For you're not sinning against law any longer, but against love. Come, confess your sin to the lover of your soul and make peace with him. But whatever happens in your life, you cannot go back under condemnation. In fact, to think you are there because you have sinned is to compound your sin, because you're failing to believe the revealed Word of God. You must not, you cannot come back there. You have been set free from the reach of condemnation, and God wants you to live in the realm of triumph. Oh, what a glorious place to live. You don't need some new experience to live there, some second blessing to live there. You don't need some emotional thrill. You only need to realize where you are in Christ. What has happened to you by the power of God? And basing your daily life on what God has done, not where you are, where your problems are, but the mighty and glorious work of grace which He has accomplished, then you are within reach of a great triumph. To be outside of Christ is very dangerous, for you are under condemnation. To be outside of Christ is most unhappy, because the carnal mind leads to death. To be outside of Christ is most unholy because you have no spirit to lead you to holiness. But to be in Christ, oh, what a glory. Oh, what a blessing to stand on the platform of what God has said about you, supported by the massive convictions and revelations of his word. The sky's the limit. You can soar in triumph and gain victory after victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let us pray together.
Lord, we marvel when we ponder what you have said about us and how we are to know and think of ourselves. Forgive us when we have lived under the great standards and platforms of your word according to the inclination of the flesh or the suggestion of Satan. O oh Lord, increase our faith that we may live where we have been placed in the sphere of victory where triumph is commonplace and where conquering is an everyday pattern. You have made us more than conquerors. Now we ask for grace to live that out. In Jesus Christ, our Lord.